0: Okay, we're going to be reading from 1 Peter uh, 5, starting with verse 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I count it a privilege to be able to come to this pulpit. As you know, um, you guys can be seated. As you know, we at Heritage Grace do have a high view of the Word of God, so I pray that I'll do honor to the text, and I pray that you guys will be blessed as much as I have been blessed in preparing this sermon. So let's pray together one more time. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just come before you, Lord, and God, we just want to thank you for just a time of worship, Lord, just the, the truths, God, that, we're, that we sung about in our hearts the truths, Lord, that you will provide, that you are faithful. God, if you're for us, who can be against us? Whom shall we fear, Lord? Thank you, Lord, that you are a sustainer, God, that you don't slumber, you don't sleep, you uphold those who cry out to you, that we may mount up with wings like eagles, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your providence, Lord. Blessed be your name, whether you give or you take away. And so, God, as we open up your word, we pray, Father, that you would be magnified. We pray that you would exalt your word, Lord. I pray for your people, Lord, that you would just um, speak to their hearts, speak to their souls. I pray that they would be encouraged and convicted. And God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, Father, as I proclaim your truth. And Father, I just pray that your truth would just be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of my sermon today is called the Humility Before God. You know, the book of 1 Peter is an amazing book. It was written by the Apostle Peter for Christians who were scattered throughout the Roman world and who were suffering or were about to suffer intense trial through persecution. The book is written as an exhortation to perseverance through godly, practical living in the midst of suffering. We can see Peter's heart as a shepherd throughout this book. It is evidenced throughout the book it is quite evident that he took the charge of Jesus Christ at the end of the Gospel of John to tend his sheep, to shepherd his sheep very seriously. We see throughout the first epistle of Peter many exhortations to practical living in the midst of suffering. And as I looked at the theme, it just really blessed my heart as we, in our own lives, as we go through trial, as we go through hardship, how we tend to Be self-centered; that we tend to want to just wallow in self-pity and be wracked with anxiety. But in the book of First Peter, we'll be we'll we'll see some points here of how it's just um, a practical exhortation in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, that we're just called to live and to endure and to persevere. We see such truths in First Peter, such gospel truths, such as that our our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter one, verse three and he also tells us of our that we are kept by the power of God and also in chapter 2 verse 9 he says that we are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for God's own possession so we see gospel truths in the, in the book of 1 Peter but we also see like i said just practical everyday life exhortations we see in chapter 2 verse 13 a submission to government we see in chapter 2 verse 18 how to submit as a servant towards his master, or in modern vernacular, how to submit as an employee to his employer. And we also see the husband-wife relationship in chapter three, verses one through seven. And not only that, we also see just exhortations in church life, the one another verses. He tells us in chapter four, verse eight, to keep fervent in your love for one another, to put to use your spiritual gift in chapter four, verse 10. And also instructions to elders in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And then right before our text, he instructs younger men to submit to their elders in the first part of verse 5. Now, leading up to our text in verse 5, as I stated earlier, the title of this message is called Humility Before God. And as we move in toward our text today, I want to submit to you five points, five fundamental points that we must recognize and apply in our lives if we are to be humble before God and, and to help us face hardship with humility. So if you're taking notes, this is the first point. The First point is to recognize God's opposition toward pride. It's found in our text in, in chapter 5 of section B. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter transitions by telling the younger men to submit to their elders, and now he's saying, all of you. All of you. It means deacons, means elders. It doesn't mean who you are in the church. We are all called to submit to one another, to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. No one is exempt. To clothe yourselves means to put on or gird yourself with a servant's apron. And the word humility speaks of a lowliness of mind to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, Romans twelve three tells us. It is an attitude which puts others first, one who is willing to serve no matter how lowly the task may seem. You know, Peter may very well have had in mind that situation in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, you know, the situation when Jesus girded himself to wash the disciples' feet. And when he came to Peter... Peter responded, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus responded, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And we know Peter's response. Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus then began to explain to his disciples what he had just did. In John 13, verses 12 through 17, it says, when he washed their feet and taken his garments reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one sent who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We're all called to put on the servant's apron, so to speak, and to serve one another. There should be no task that we should be above, and likewise, we should not prevent someone from ministering to us that is being led of the Lord. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with the humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So then, beloved brethren, Colossians 3.12 tells us, as those chosen of God, put on a heart of humility. And I pray that we here at Heritage Grace will be those, will be known as a church of, that is clothed with humility toward one another. That we would um, not feel that we're above doing a certain task and ministering towards one another. And that also we would not rob someone else of a blessing. I know that happens sometimes where, oh, bro, you don't have to do that. You know, it's okay. I'll take care of it. But you know, if if this person is being led of the Lord and wants to bless you, we should allow them to bless you. So the question comes, why are we commanded to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another? Reading on in the last part of verse 5, why? For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen to this. The word opposed means to to be set up in battle array against someone. This is God's attitude toward the prideful and arrogant. He sets up in battle array against them. Proverbs 6, 16, and 17 says this, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And the very first part of that list is haughty eyes. It can be also translated a proud look. Why is God so opposed to the proud? Because it is so contrary to the grace of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it not? The presence of pride should not even be named in us who profess to be Christians. One commentator put it this way. I found this very, very edifying and convicting. Listen to this. The presence of pride in a professing Christian is indicative of a deficiency in his understanding of that by which he was saved and of that which he professes. His pride indicates that he has greatly underestimated the vileness of the sin from which he was saved and that he, was, he has greatly undervalued the price of the redemption, the, the blood of Christ, and that he has seriously mas- miscalculated the gratitude he owes to God for his saving mercies, and that he has lost sight of the life of the one who redeemed him. Have this attitude in yourselves who is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, Christ says right there that he humbled himself. And who are we to, to be walking around prideful and arrogant? And I pray that we would never lose sight of these truths, that we would never lose sight of the truths of the gospel of grace, they would never lose sight of the humility of Christ. Far be it from us here at Heritage Grace that we would be those who are prideful and arrogant. In stark contrast to the fact that God opposes the proud, and the, that he gives grace, is that he gives grace to the humble. Edmund Clowney, in his commentary on 1 Peter, put it this way: The Christian knows that he did not make himself or save himself. His humility springs from his total dependence on God. And then Alexander Nesbitt says, the grace of humility is that adornment whereby a Christian has a low esteem of himself flowing from the sense of his own sinfulness and the undeserved goodness of God. We see this example in, in 2 Corinthians 12 as the Apostle Peter was pleading with God to remove this thorn in the flesh. And we know... Um, as he pleaded this is what he he wrote after that concerning this I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me and he has said to me my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness most gladly therefore I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake for when I am weak then I am strong. So, brothers and sisters, we must recognize that he is opposed to the proud, but that he gives grace to the humble. And now we come to our second point. We must recognize his providence. Looking at verse six Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Because God is opposed to the proud, and he gives grace to the humble, we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, what is this mighty hand of God? The mighty hand of God speaks of his sovereign providence over the lives of his people. It speaks of God's holy, wise, and powerful governing of his people and their circumstances, one catechism puts it. See an example of God's mighty hand. We look at Exodus 13.3. Moses said to the people remember this day in which you were out, you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery but for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place so to humble ourselves under his mighty hand means means to submit to his wisdom and to live our lives with clear understanding that he is in control and that everything is being orchestrated by him to accomplish his purposes it means as Wayne Grudem puts it to accept the twists and turns of his providence, even though it may mean suffering in this life. And you know what else? It also means that we should put away all grumbling and complaining. You know, to grumble and to complain is to question God, God's providence over our life. It is to have that prideful attitude that, that you think that you know better than God about your circumstances and what to do in them. You are to humble yourself under his mighty hand, that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, that humiliation leads to exaltation is a common biblical theme. Matthew 23, 12 says, Whoever exalts himself himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. It is God who will exalt us, Who it is God who will exalt to raise up and to lift up the child of God out of their trials and suffering at his wisely predetermined time whether in this life or the life to come. And what does this exaltation entail? Well, it may may mean spiritual blessing, increased spiritual blessing and deeper fellowship with God, or it may mean increased honor, greater responsibility, or greater reward. Whatever the case may be, we are to humble ourselves before God by recognizing his providence over our lives. Continuing on in the thought of what it means to humble ourselves before God, My third point is this, we must recognize his care for us. Verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now this verse, verse 7, is a continuation of verse 6. It's not a new thought, it's a continuation of verse 6. Casting our anxiety on him is one way we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. The word casting means to fling something on someone to fling something away from us. It speaks of a deliberate act of exerting effort. And brothers and sisters, listen to this. It is a command. We are to cast all our worries, all our anxieties on God. The word anxiety can also be translated worry. And the Greek word is marimna, and it means to divide, part, rip, or tear apart, to be drawn in different directions. You know, this is what anxiety does, brothers and sisters. We worry about something we can do nothing about or even, can, cannot even be sure about, and it tears us apart. It draws us in different directions. What are we to do? We are to cast them onto God. For when we do, as one commentator puts, listen to this, when we cast our anxiety on God, this is what we are doing we are acknowledging that our anxiety is sin. We admit that we cannot handle it ourselves. We accept God's providential ordering of our lives, and we anticipate that he will work in us, for us, and through us. And this attitude of utter dependency on God honors him and pleases him. One way we can cast our anxieties on God is found in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, through prayer. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We let our requests be made known to God, and we are to do so, this is key, listen to this, we are to do so with thanksgiving. And the source of our thankful spirit is a certain knowledge, a certain Conviction in our soul that he cares for us. Proverbs 12 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. And isn't it a good word, brothers and sisters, that he cares for you, that he cares for me? And I think Peter had in mind just that very lesson from the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus taught on this topic of worry and anxiety. Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. Peter was part of that audience listening to this sermon. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more worth than they? And if who, who of you being worried can add a single hour of his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies in the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory was clo- clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what shall we eat or what will we we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So let me ask you guys, let me ask you brothers and sisters, when hardships and trials come upon us, how do we respond? When we're at work and we hear rumors of layoffs or terminations when um, our finances are not where they should be, when our marriage is not what, wh- where it should be. And granted, we've done what we can do. You know, we're, we're seeking to provide the best we can for our family. We're seeking to be a godly husband, a godly wife, and there's no response. It's not being met. What are we to do? How do we respond? Do we respond with anxiety? Do we respond with worry? Or do we trust in God and believe that he cares for us and that his caring has the power to do the very best for us? Earlier in this epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Peter told his readers, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So far we've covered three points and what it means to be humble before God. We've seen our need to recognize his opposition toward pride. We've seen our need to recognize his providence. And we've also just looked at the need to recognize his care for us. And so now we come to our fourth point, which is to recognize the warfare. Verses 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We can be assured, brothers and sisters, that when we seek to apply these truths, isn't isn't this so true that when we seek to be clothed with humility towards one another, when we seek to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, when we seek to cast all our anxieties on him, it just seems like the warfare intensifies. We can be assured of that. And I believe this is why Peter tells his readers to be of sober spirit, to be on the alert. To be of sober spirit means to be clear-headed, to be free from mental confusion. And to be alert means to be watchful, attentive, awake. And you know, when we're wracked with anxiety, when we're wracked with worry, when we're wallowing in self pity, we're, ne- we're none of these things. We are not attentive. We are not free from mental confusion. We are not awake. That's why Peter tells us that we are commanded, that's why we are to be sober and to be alert. Why are we commanded to have this heightened sense of what is going on within us and around us? It is because we have an adversary, the devil who is the enemy of our souls, a slanderer and an accuser of the brethren. Peter goes on to say that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I don't know if you've seen these, like, I don't know if it was National Geographic, these television programs, Animal Kingdom or whatever it was, where they'll show these lions, Uh, first they'll show animals just like walking around in a herd, And um, next thing you know, there's like a lion or two up in the, up just just stealthily, cunningly just um, watching them, you know, just like secretively watching them. And you know, they're basically what they're doing is they're prowling about. They're quietly stalking their prey. And you you notice that when you watch these shows that they go after those who are kind of like divided from the group or those who are just straggling behind, those who are weak. You know, this is just a graphic to me, just an analogy of us if we are not spiritually sober, if we are not spiritually alert, the devil will seek to attack us and try to devour us. The word devour is a graphic term. It means to drink down or to gulp down. Satan targets those who proclaim the name of God and who are seeking to be faithful to him. His his aim is to destroy our faith, to destroy our testimony, to remove from us the joy of our salvation this, this is the language, brothers and sisters. When it says devour, our adversary wants to devour us. Okay, he seeks our spiritual annihilation. What are we to do? Well, verse 9 gives us the answer. But resist him, firm in your faith. To resist means to stand against. James 4 7 puts it this way resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We resist him by being firm in our faith. We do this by trusting in God in what he has told us in his word. We do this by standing firmly upon the gospel of grace, of the grace of God in Christ. We also do this by putting on the full armor of God. Ephesians 6, 11, through th- 11 and 13 says this in verse 11 of Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then verse 13 says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. You might want to review that on your own time. Go, turn to Ephesians six ten through 18 and review the armor of God. But Peter, but Paul in Ephesians 6 is exhorting believers to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand against the devil. And now notice at verse 9, continuing on in verse 9. It says, Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Peter was telling the recipients of this epistle that they were not alone in their suffering. One thing that will make our commitment firmer is the awareness that we are not suffering alone. I know those, those of you guys who are in the military Peter Davis gives this commentary, um, a military um, analogy of what it means to know that you're not suffering alone. He says, quote, Like soldiers whose morale is strengthened by knowing that the whole army is engaged in the same battle hardships they are in, Christians should be strengthened to resist the devil and not given to the persecution by the knowledge that they are not alone in their suffering. You know, this is why fellowship is so important. We need to get together with the brethren that we may encourage one another. Because when we get together and we fellowship with one another is when we realize that we're not the only ones that are going through trials, that we're not the only ones going through hardships. And when we come together, it is then that we can encourage one another. We can spur one another on to love and good works. We can exhort one another to resist the devil and to be firm in our faith. You know the scripture in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 tells us to let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So brothers and sisters of Heritage Grace, I want to encourage you to seek out, to encourage one another, to seek out fellowship with one another. We can't do it on our own, right? We need to spur one another on to love and good works, We need to seek to be transparent with one another. I know in our small groups a couple of months ago, we were talking about just the importance of transparency with one another, that we would confess our sins to one another, that we can pray with one another and lift each other up lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So let us always be those who are seeking to encourage one another, seeking to uh, be transparent with one another. Okay, now my fifth and final point. After writing about the adversary and how to resist him, In the midst of their suffering, Peter now points them back to God, which leads me to my fifth and final point. We must recognize His grace. After you have suffered, verses 10 and 11 say this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is now encouraging the readers by letting them know that there will be an end to their suffering and by pointing pointing them to the God of all grace. Indeed, our suffering is for a little while compared to eternity. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. in the midst of our suffering we must realize that God has a sanctifying purpose for it. He ordains and governs our suffering according to his providence. The hardship will end when he has accomplished his purpose through it. We are called to trust him because he is the God of all grace. It is by God's grace that we are sanctified through our suffering, that we are preserved through our suffering, and that he will bring us out of our suffering to glory. It is by God's grace that he Called you to his eternal glory, which is um, the next verse here, in, chapter, in verse 10, the second part of verse 10. He has called you to his eternal glory. It speaks of an effectual calling. J.I. Packer defi- defines this calling as the doctrine of God summoning the elect by his word and laying hold of them by his power to play a part and enjoy the benefits of his gracious and redemptive purposes. From effectual call all the way to glorification, eternal glory is God's intention for us. And no temporal suffering suffering can thwart the eternal purposes of God calling his people. Peter, seeking to further encourage the readers in the midst of their suffering, goes on to say that God will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Isn't that God's grace, brothers and sisters? I mean, God is the high and lofty one. He is so far above us, and yet he is personally involved with us. He is personally involved in the midst of our suffering. It says that God will himself do these things. It is God's grace that he himself is sanctifying us through our suffering. Great, the text tells us, well, he will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. These words to perfect, to confirm, to strengthen, and to establish are verbs. They're verbs, and they're all like they're almost just synonymously linked. Okay, and they they indicate the strength and the immovability that God wants to use, that God wants for us as we face the spiritual battle. Because the text says that He will Himself do these things. What does that tell us? It tells us that they, they are promises. God promises to perfect, to confirm, to strengthen, and to establish us. The word perfect means to restore and to mend. That word mend um, is, was used, in, I, I believe, in Mark's gospel when the fishermen were mending their nets. So God promises to mend us, to restore us in the midst of our suffering and after our suffering. To confirm means to set fast and to support. God will make us steadfast and immovable. God uses trials in our our, our, um, lives to sanctify us, to make us steadfast, to set us fast, that we may be immovable. Strengthen means to make firm, right? The Bible tells us to be firm in faith, to be firm in our faith. God promises in the midst of our suffering and after our suffering to strengthen us, to make us firm, and to establish means to make to be firmly grounded to make grounded as to be on a solid foundation god is indeed doing these things in our lives now and will continue to do them all the way to glory he is the god of all grace is it any wonder that peter responds in a doxology in verse 11 to him be dominion forever and ever amen the god who has promised Who has promised has the power to fulfill what he has promised and to that we can say amen we can say amen so be it so in closing let us remember the five fundamental points we are to recognize and apply into our lives if we are to be humble before God and face hardship with humility number one recognize God's opposition toward pride he sets up in battle array against those who are prideful. Let us not forget what pride is, what it does. It, it flies in the face of God. It flies in the face of, of the gospel. It flies in the face of the example of Christ. Number two, let us recognize God's providence, that through our suffering, through our trial, God is providentially guiding us and bringing us through that. And let us submit to that because he, in his sovereignty is also loving and he's also wise so we must trust him and trust his providence point number three was to recognize his care for us put off anxiety brothers and sisters put it off it is a sin cast them onto the lord because he cares for you point number four is to recognize the warfare we have an adversary the devil bible tells us to resist him firm in your faith resist the devil and he will flee from you Cling to the promises of God's word. Cling to the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And the final point, recognize God's grace, that in the midst of our suffering, he is sanctifying us, that he will, by his persevering grace, his preserving grace, he will see us all the way to, the, to eternity, all the way to final glorification. Let's pray. Father, we just... Um, Humbly come before you, Lord. Thank you for your word, Lord. I just pray, God, that you would um, be glorified. I pray that your people, Lord, um, would be built up and encouraged by this word, Lord, as I was. As I was, Lord, just help us to be humble before you. That we would clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. That we that we would humble ourselves under your mighty providential hand knowing that you will provide knowing that you will sustain us lord god help us with our worry and our anxiety lord we live in a world that um just causes us to be torn apart to be drawn in different directions um, that causes mental confusion lord help us to cast all those cares upon you because you are worthy because you care because you love us lord And help us to remember that we um, have an adversary. Lord, you tell us to resist him, to be firm in our faith. I pray, God, that we would stand on the promises of the gospel, that we would be firm in our faith, because, Lord, you are the God of all grace. You promise to strengthen us, to establish us, to restore us, to confirm us from here all the way to glory, God. So, Father, we just um, thank you. We praise you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.